We are going to be in John chapter 8, looking at verses 31 to 38. If you turn there, we'll read that together, and then uh, I will remember to dismiss the kids from Children's Church. John chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back. Uh, If you don't have one at all, you can keep that. So, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with, my, seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. The Lord add a blessing to his word this morning. Uh, kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church. Kids, teachers, have fun. I was counted as a privilege to be able to get up here and preach the Word of God. I know it's something that we don't take lightly here at King's Chapel, and it's a great opportunity. I think this is the, I, for some reason I went online and counted, and this is the 16th time I've been able to preach. I thought it was like six. So it's just been, it's a blessing to me. It's an encouragement to my soul that I get to do these studies, and uh, hopefully it's an encouragement to you that we can do it together. With that said, this morning we are picking up where we left off in our study of the gospel according to John, the invisible made visible. And what we saw last week was Jesus was still in the temple speaking. He was in the treasury. He's coming off. Uh, He's in the festival of booths or tabernacles. And it was during a ceremony that was called the illumination ceremony where they, they, they gathered and they lit these giant candelabras that illuminated the temple remembering the, 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 the pillar of smoke and, and fire that led them, led Israel through the wilderness. They, they lit these torches for that ceremony, and it was after those torches were lit that Jesus stands up, we, we learned, and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that stirred up a little controversy. And the Pharisees thought they had him. They were like, your testimony is not true. You're testifying about yourself. So then Jesus takes the very law they're trying to use against him. He says, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. He could just drop the mic. <laughs> so then there's further questions. And Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. But he is not necessarily there. Jesus is just saying, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am, that 
that name that God uses when he tells Moses, tell them I am sent you. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Which causes more uproar, more questioning. And then Jesus continues, and he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And that's where we left off last week. This is where we're picking up this week. Still in the temple, Jesus says he is, I am. He speaks with the same authority. And now we see Jesus today, he's going to teach us something about uh, man's sinful state, but also the redeeming power that he has and the power to free slaves to sin through him. And we'll see that as we look at the words of truth, we'll look at slaves to sin, and we'll look at freedom through the Son. Quite simple. So that's what we're going to look at, and uh, we'll pick it up here in verse 31. And this verse starts with the description of the audience who Jesus is talking to. He says to... So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Audience is important. When we understand who Jesus is talking to, we understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying. We understand what he's saying because we know who he's talking to. So when John refers to the Jews who had believed in him, it could be referring to those that we saw just previously in verse 30 that said many believed in him. But it's also likely referring to those Jews who had believed Jesus, but on the surface level. They had a a, a shallow belief that they liked Jesus, but they, they weren't all in. They liked the signs. They liked the wonders. They liked what he had to offer, but they weren't necessarily, they didn't get what he was teaching. Scholar Leon Morris says, this section of discourse is addressed to those who believe and yet do not believe. Clearly, they were inclined to think that what Jesus said was true, but they were not prepared to yield to him the far-reaching alliance that real trust in him implies. This group seemingly doesn't get it. And we've seen this same group throughout this gospel as we studied it. Jesus speaks, and they're like, huh? So Jesus' response here is designed to help them get it. To help them see what a true disciple of him looks like. So he says to them, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what what does a disciple look like? Jesus answered it. Someone who abides in his word. Someone who hears the word and obeys the word. Who knows the truth of the gospel and lives it out and lives in it. The key word of this entire statement is the word abide. If you have an NIV, it probably says hold to. Or if you have an NASB translation, it says continue in. They're all saying the same thing. A true disciple of Christ seeks to live out their faith in obedience to his teaching, to look more like Christ himself. And that can sound really uh, intimidating. 
nearly impossible, actually impossible, to do. So what I want to look at this morning in this section is three things about abiding. Three truths about abiding. The first one is that abiding in Christ is evidence of salvation. It's not a prerequisite of salvation. That's important. Something we need to know. Gospel 101 right there. Abiding in Christ is evidence of salvation, not a prerequisite of salvation. So what Jesus is saying in this passage, what he's not saying in this passage, is you have to obey perfectly everything I've set for you, and then you will be saved. And then you can be my disciples. That's not what he's saying. Jesus in the rest of Scripture is quite clear that the work of salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ's work alone. So no righteous deed that we do will ever bring us salvation. It's through faith and trust in Christ. His work on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. So our our abiding in the word, our obedience to the word, our good works is evidence of that salvation and not the other way around. Proof of this? Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So when? When did God love us? While we were dead in our trespasses. Not once we managed to get our act together, because it's never going to happen fully. While we were running from him, while we were rebelling, right to his face, he loved us and made us alive with Christ by his grace. I love singing the song Scarlet here on Sunday mornings. Because that that very short chorus just reminds us with the words, you have loved me when I did nothing to deserve it. We sang it last week. We didn't sing it this week, but it was still on my mind. Abiding in or obedience to is not the source of our salvation, but it's the result of salvation. It's the, the outer display of an inward change. After we come to that saving knowledge of who, who Christ is, is and what he's done for us and we've been regenerated by the spirit of God there should be evidences of that regeneration in our lives it's seen in our attitudes and our actions both towards God and towards others and how we live our life in worship to God because all aspect of life is worship not just the music we sing here not just what we do in this place but all of our life is worship those evidences are seen in how we live that out Those evidences are seen in how we treat others. How we love them. I think self-examination is a necessary thing to do in our lives. In businesses all around the world, people do self-evaluations. Why? Just to see, how, how am I doing? How do I think I'm doing? Here's the expectation. How am I doing with that? I think self-evaluation is good. Not, not to, especially in our Christian walk, not just to, to make us go, oh, I need to, I need to be more perfect because that's not going to happen. But just to see the evidences of God's work in our life. 
just to check and go, have, have, have I been living this? And if the answer is no, that doesn't mean like, oh, shoot, I'm not saved. Dang it, that's not what it means. It just means like, thank you, God, for your grace. Help me to do this better. Lead me. Help me to do this better. Examine ourselves. Ask ourselves, do I look different than I did a year ago? Do I look different than I did when Christ first saved me? Does my life reflect the effect of the gospel that it's had? That's an important question to ask. And that can be difficult, and it can seem discouraging, but there is good news, and that brings me to the second truth about abiding. Abiding is not dependent on us alone. So, you can just breathe a sigh of relief. It's not dependent on us alone. Just as our salvation is by the grace and the work of God, our enduring, our abiding, is through the grace and the work of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his Son. Paul reminds us in this passage that it's Jesus He's the one holding us close. He's the one sustaining us, preserving our faith, helping us to abide. I think of uh, Peter when he's in the boat and Jesus is on the water and Jesus calls him out of the boat and Peter takes those couple steps onto the water and he's doing it and then all of a sudden he notices the storm and the waves and he begins to sink. Now, what saved Peter in that moment was not his stellar swimming skills. Dependent on that, he would have drowned and that would have been the end of Peter. What saved Peter was Jesus himself reaching in to pull him out of the water. In the midst of his doubt, Jesus, he says, why did you doubt? I'm here. Peter didn't do it perfectly. He had Jesus pulling him out, teaching him, trust me. Have faith in me. God is sovereign. God sustains. Jesus holds us close. But I can't just leave it there. We do, we do have a responsibility. It's, it's not either or. Either it's dependent on us or it's all God. It's both and. He's sovereign. We're responsible. We're not saved to just be robots who all of a sudden at salvation are like, I will do your will, Father, and yours alone. Like, that'd be, that'd be weird. We would be lifeless. We are real people who make real choices and have to take real action in life. For example, if I just sit here and never open this Bible, I'm never going to understand the truth that's in it. If I never read it, I, I'm never going to know. If I never pray, I'm never going to feel comfortable approaching God in prayer. It's common sense. There, there, there is an action that we, we need to, to read and pursue God. But what keeps us wanting more, what keeps us coming before Him, is the Spirit's work inside of us, fueling our affections for God. It might seem a little confusing. It's a, it's a, it's a big thing. Like, it's not just like simple, like, Oh yeah, that makes complete sense. 
takes a little bit to wrap your mind around, but you can rest in it. I think of it like, like playing on any kind of sporting team, whether it's basketball, baseball, football, whatever. You have a coach. That coach can teach you what you need to do to be able to win a game, to be able to execute a play. That coach can teach you. But you've got to show up to practice. You can't be Allen Iverson. You know, we have to, we have to show up so, so we can be taught. We can't be like, God, show me more about you. And then just hope that like there's this telepathy or osmosis is going to do it. You've got to open the book. You've got to read the words. There was a, a missionary named John Moxon who used to come to my college when he was speaking. And he would talk about the Bible. And he'd be like, these are not just black words on white pages. It's the living Jesus. It's the living Jesus. We can open. We have our God's words right here. Or right here, depending on what you use. But we got to show up. And to go back to the coaching analogy, we know that God is a most gracious coach because he knows we're going to miss a lot of practice and we're going to need a lot of coaching and instruction. I'm going to have to be shown how to hit 500,000 times and I might get it right, but a few. And that's what brings me to the next truth about abiding. Abiding is something we'll never do perfectly. Something we'll never do perfectly. The call in this passage is not for true disciples will live out everything I do 100% of the time, all the time. If the call was perfection, Jesus would have approximately zero true disciples. He would have none. He would have himself. He's the only one who ever lived out all that God commanded in perfection. So I know that when we read texts like this, it's, it's challenging, which is good. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to talk about obedience, enduring, and faith because we know we haven't done it perfect. I know I'm standing up here preaching it. Imagine reading this for a week or more and going, oh, I still screw up. I'm sitting here. I'm getting ready to preach to people, and I'm not doing it perfectly. Like, it stings, but that's good. And it's encouraging because we're not... The expectation isn't that we're going to do it perfect. If we could, if we had the ability to live out everything God required perfectly, Christ wouldn't have had to went to the cross. Because God would go, you can do it. I know you can. So you didn't do it? All right, you're going to go to hell. Who, who can do this perfect? Like, that's not what it is. He knows we're imperfect. So Christ had to go to the cross. Because of our imperfection, Christ had to become the perfect sacrifice. It's impossible for us to get it all right all the time. It's a process, sometimes a long process. Going back to Peter, I think sometimes we forget that when we read that Peter dropped his nets and followed Christ, we forget that there are years in between that occurrence and when he's preaching at Pentecost. And when he's standing before the Sanhedrin 
defending his faith in Christ, defending the gospel. There's years that Jesus worked in him, taught him, instructed him. It's a process. And we know Peter didn't do it perfectly either. Denied him three times. God didn't drop him. He used him. We make a lot of mistakes. Uh, Kevin DeYoung said at the Together for the Gospel conference that we were at a few weeks ago, he said, the more godly you become, the less godly you feel. It's true. The, the more we're revealed and the more the truth is, is exposed, we're exposed to the truth, the more we see like, wow, I'm, I'm missing it. I think of it like playing guitar. When, when I first began playing any little lick I could squeak out that sounded like something on the radio or like any like bar chord, which if you don't know, are a pain when you're first starting. Anytime I could get that just a little bit right so it didn't sound completely terrible, I would be like, yes, I am awesome. <laughs> but now that I've been playing for over 10 years, and though I've learned so much, I'm quite aware now at how not awesome I am. <laughs> I realize there is so much to learn on one little instrument with six strings that I don't know. Now, if I look at where I'm at now, compared to where I was when I first started, there's been a long way that's come. There's been a process, a learning. That's the same way in our life. I look back today in 2016 where I was in 2003 there was a big difference in my walk with the Lord he's done a lot and I haven't abided obeyed perfectly this is what Paul says in Romans he says for I do not understand my own actions for I do not for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. This is Paul. He wrote more than half of the New Testament. Paul didn't get it, get it right perfectly. God used Paul despite his iniquity, despite his mistakes. And Paul recognizes that the good works that he does do is as a result of the Spirit in his life, which brings us back full circle that abiding in obedience is evidence of salvation, not the source of our salvation. True disciples will abide, not perfectly, not in our own strength, but by the work of God in us. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. As disciples of Christ, we're called to abide, and to, we abide in his words in order to know the truth. In John 6, when we looked at that, Jesus says, I have the words of eternal life. Jesus is talking about those, those words, the truth of those words, the truth of the gospel. If you abide in his word, you'll understand the depths and the truth of the good news. 
The gospel, as Tim Keller says, is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z. Because if all we needed was the gospel to get saved and the rest was all on our own, well, the gospel would be like, okay, that's good news, I'm in, and see you later. We'd just be left on our own, and it wouldn't work out. But the gospel continually is at work showing us more truth, revealing to us more about our sinful condition, more about the Father's love for us, more about Jesus' perfect atoning sacrifice, more about his resurrection, more about the Spirit's work, and everything in between. We won't fully grasp the truth, no matter what, but we won't get a bigger picture of the truth unless we're pursuing God's truth. God knows that. That's why he brings us through the process. That's why he teaches us. He doesn't say, okay, you've come to faith. I'll see you on the other side. Good luck. It's a rough world out there. I hope you make it. He doesn't do that. He guides us through it, coaches us, teaches us his truth so that we can know the truth and that truth can set us free. Now, in order to be free from something... There's an implication. The implication is that we are first bound. In order to be set free, we're bound to something to begin with. We're not freed from our freedom. We're freed from bondage. So as we continue here in Slaves to Sin, looking at uh, verses 33 and 35, Jesus is telling them, he says, abide in my words, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then the Jews hear this and they respond. They say, we are the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So they put together what Jesus was saying. They, they heard him say, you'll be set free. And they were like, wait a minute. You're saying we're not free. And they took offense. And they're like, we've never been enslaved Now, as I've mentioned, and as we've mentioned throughout this entire series, Jesus speaks, the listeners hear it, they miss the spiritual, what Jesus is talking about, they think the earthly, and this is what's happening. But, where it gets even a little more uh, silly, and I relate, I do the same thing that these guys do, I'm not saying I'm any better than the Jews in this story, I'm in denial myself, but even from an earthly and a spiritual perspective, these guys are way off. They've never been enslaved. I think the Old Testament disagrees with that. (laughs) Just two words, Egyptians, Babylonians, and more in there. So even from that perspective, they're in denial. We we're Abraham's offspring. We've never been enslaved. Okay. We'll forget, that, uh, we'll forget that the Roman soldiers are walking around you right now. And um, Yeah. The first step to overcoming a problem is admitting first that you have a problem. And the audience here was in great denial. And Jesus, he doesn't even give it as much thought as I just did. Jesus just skips over it. He goes straight to the point. He doesn't even address, like, it's like he, if they're like, we've never been enslaved, it's like Jesus looks at them. Okay, and then he just goes straight to it. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
Now, you know Jesus means business when the truly, truly comes out. If you're sitting there and you're texting and Jesus is like, truly, truly, you're kind of like, put my phone away. What's up? So Jesus says, truly, truly. He's like, listen carefully. You think you've never been enslaved. I tell you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, slavery to sin doesn't just look like living the party life. It doesn't just look like doing whatever you want when you want. That's part of it. But slave, being a slave to sin can also look like being a, a pompous religious snob who thinks that they're better than everyone else and trusts in their own righteousness. That's slavery to sin just as much. It's just on the other side of the spectrum. And the Jews in this passage have a superiority issue. They say, we're sons of Abraham. Surely we've never been enslaved. And Jesus is telling them, you're enslaved right now. Unless you hear the truth of my words, you're never going to be free. Unless you see that I am the Son of God, come to save lost and broken people, you will continue in that slavery. Right now, sin is your master, and you're enslaved to it. I'm here to free you from that. And Jesus doesn't just point out sin just to make people feel bad, just to, to condemn them, but he, he calls out our sin, points out that we're slaves to sin so that we can recognize it, so that we can come out of this false reality, this denial, and repent and turn to him. He wants to call us out of that false reality we live in. One of my favorite shows right now is not Seinfeld, though it is, but I've been watching like crazy Property Brothers. I don't know if any of you guys have watched the show, but it's great. And the whole premise of the show is that there's these home buyers. They're looking to get out of this place that they're in, and they want to move into this place that has everything on this wish list. And this list is filled with bathroom upon bathroom. We want the bedrooms. We want this big open concept, blah, 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 blah. The property brothers are like, okay. There's the, there's the real estate guy. There's the con- contractor guy. And they take him to this first home in the show. This isn't a spoiler. They do it every episode. But they take him to this big home that checks off every box on the wish list. And it looks fantastic. And the people are always like, oh, I love this home. This is what I've wanted. And then Drew, the bearer of bad news, is like, oh, you can't afford it. So... They have the reality check where it's like, if you want everything on this list, you're going to have to buy a cheap home that we can basically gut and do over again. He gives them a reality check. You want move-in ready? You can't have move-in ready. And Jesus is bringing these Jews here and us out of our false reality that there's nothing wrong and showing us, we're slaves to sin. He's telling them, get out of your false sense of freedom. You think, you think you're free because of your ancestries, because of your, your heritage. That has nothing to do with salvation. That has nothing to do with freedom. God doesn't look at me and go, okay, Ricky, who was your dad? Who was his dad? Who was his dad? And so on and so forth. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, okay, because of who, who your history has to do with you... You, you're free. It doesn't work that way. 
Your family could have the longest line of uh, running, of, of Christian heritage, and loving Jesus. That doesn't affect you in your salvation. That's something great. It's something to be celebrated, to look back on and see the grace of God in. But it has to do with, are, are, are you going to respond to the call of the gospel? Not if you're your dad or your grandfather or your great-grandfather respond to the call of the gospel? Are you going to respond to the call? And on the same on the flip side, if you have a long heritage of people who have wanted nothing to do with Jesus, have hated him, have completely just denied him, you can still come to Jesus when he calls. You can still say, I want Jesus. And he's not going to go, no, I saw your family. No. He's going to, arms open wide love you and embrace you. Paul makes it clear in Romans 3.23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't say for those who aren't the offspring of Abraham, they have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't say those without rich Christian roots have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in that same passage, Paul tells us the only way to be freed from that. Verse 24. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There is no freedom from the slavery of sin aside from that of the grace of God and faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Again, Heritage, lineage, something to be looked, about, looked back on, celebrated as God's faithfulness and God's grace. That's why we have genealogy in the scripture. We get to those chapters with all the names and it's like, oh, I can't even pronounce these things. But the reminder of this is how God provided for his people. This is how God showed his faithfulness. God makes promises, God keeps them. That's why we look back and we celebrate. Not man's faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. Apart from Christ, no matter how free you feel, whatever reality you're living in, apart from him, you'll never know the true gift of true freedom. Unless Christ is the one who breaks your change, you'll live a life with a false sense of freedom and reality. So Jesus is saying to the Jews, I'm telling you the truth. Abide in my words. Know the truth of the gospel. And that will set you free. Skipping down past 35 and 36, we'll come back to those, but 37 and 38, Jesus tells them, he says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Lowercase f, not the same father. You guys say you're Abraham's offspring, but you're trying to kill me. Abraham surely didn't try to kill God. He followed after God. He served God. He obeyed God. Not perfectly, that's for sure. But Abraham trusted in God's word. Paul reminds us in Romans 4.3 that Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. Jesus is saying, your father Abraham believed me. Believe my father. You do not. I speak of what I have seen in my Father. But you do what you have heard from your Father. And we find out 
later that he's saying, your father is the devil. Like, they're, they're saying, our father is Abraham. Jesus is like, no, your father is the devil. And you're listening to his words. And his words aren't true. His words are holding you in bondage, holding you captive in your sin. But my words are life. My words are trustworthy and true. Abide in them, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What's the truth? Sinners. We are sinners. What's the other part of the truth? We're saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's good news. Do you know that truth this morning? Do you know it? Are the words of Jesus penetrating your hearts, your minds, your soul? Or is it Satan whispering in your ear, you don't need Christ? You've got this. Look, look, look at your family. You don't need Jesus. Look at what you've done for yourself this far. You don't need Christ. You're nothing. You're worthless. You can't come to Jesus. He'll never love you. Those are lies. Those are the lies that the Jews in this passage are, are listening to when they're like, we've never been enslaved. That's a lie. Jesus is, is saying, we, we need him. We, we need to respond to his call. He's not going to push us away. He's going to embrace us when we come to him in our brokenness and sin. Do you believe that? Why is abiding in his word and knowing the truth so, so important? Because if we abide in the word of God and we learn the truth and we're constantly in the truth, when the lie comes, we can go false. The gospel tells me this. You say I'm worthless. God says I have tremendous worth in Christ. I'm made in his image and likeness. We can combat those lies that that seek to tear us down. You're never good enough. Yeah, but God makes me good enough. That's why we need to abide in his word. That's why we need his truth. That's what true freedom looks like. So let's go back to verses 35 and 36. As Jesus is commenting still on slavery. So he said in 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And in verse 35, he has this little, almost uh, parable or, or saying, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. So if the Son, capital S, Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So what's Jesus talking about? He's making a distinction between the slave or bondservant and the Son in the house. There's a difference. A bondservant, if you don't know, is typically someone indebted to someone else. They're they're providing a service with no wage. They, they are servants or slaves, not in the sense of the atrocity that was the slavery in America, but back then it was a culturally different. It was a regular occurrence to have bond servants. They were typically paying off some kind of a debt that was owed to the family. Um, there did come with a social barrier, which is why Jesus is even saying there's a difference between the slave and the son. But the slave doesn't have a permanent place in the house because... When the, the debt was paid, that servant was no longer needed there. Or uh, if that slave could, could be sold to another family to, to finish the debt somewhere else, there wasn't a, a place of permanence 
in the family for the bondservant or the slave. The position of slave is not one of authority. It's one of submission. The son, on the other hand, is in the house forever. The son is the father's son. That's who the son is. So in that sense, the son to the father never ceases to be the son. So the bondservant is here doing what needs to be done, does not have a permanent position, does not receive an inheritance when the father dies. It's not, the, the slave is not permanent. The son is permanent. And Jesus is letting them know, you guys are slaves apart from knowing the son. You're slaves to sin. Whoever you're the offspring of, that doesn't give you a position in the home because you don't know the son. You don't know me. Jesus has told us repeatedly throughout the gospel that he is the son of God and that when he speaks, he speaks with the same authority as the father. We just saw that last week and the week before. Jesus has the authority. So the only one that has the keys to unlock unlock the shackles of sin that have us bound is the son. The Jews look at Jesus. They go, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Jesus says, yes, you are, because you don't know me. You don't know who I am. You don't believe the words that I'm speaking. You don't believe the truth that I'm teaching. You can't possibly be free, because it is only the Son who can set you free. Jesus is the Son. And when Jesus sets a prisoner free, here's, here's the, really, the really good news. He doesn't just set them free and go, go on your merry way. You're, you're not really, you're still not in the house. You're just free to go. And he doesn't set them free to go off to some evil captor. He sets them free to be free. It says free indeed. Sets them free to live to the glory of God, to the worship of the Father, Son, and Spirit, to live on mission and make disciples. To live a life not in rebellion to God under the whip of sin and Satan, but to live a life in relationship with God. That's free indeed. Freedom is not a free-for-all to do whatever we want. That's one of those lies the devil would whisper to have us think, like freedom is just, I'll do what I want, when I want, whenever I want. That's not freedom. That's, That's an illusion that's been created. That's an illusion that is rampant throughout our culture. That's the same fairy tale that that Satan whispered to to Adam and Eve as they they gazed upon the forbidden fruit. And he's like, eat it. It'll be better. You can do what you want. God's not going to kill you. No, Adam and Eve's true freedom was found in obedience to the Father, living in relationship with him in the garden. They knew their creator. They knew the truth. And that's where they had freedom. It's when they were deceived that they were now bound in perceived freedom. Know the Son, the Son will set you free. Who the Son sets free will be free indeed. So it isn't just free us just to release us, but we're freed from being captives of sin, and we are brought in to the house and made sons and daughters. How cool is that? And cool is definitely an understatement word. We're not just, it's not just like we're released and God says, go. It's we're released and he's like, my child. We're in the family. 
We're brought into that home as sons and daughters. Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Ephesians 1, 5. In love he predestined us for the adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise and glory of his grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Galatians 4, 4 4-7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And here, here's the kicker where it really just shows the parallel here. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. We go from slaves to sins, the sons of the Father, children, fellow heirs with Christ, the Scripture says. We're brought into the family of God. We're loved as his children. We can, call him, we can call him dad, and he's a perfect dad. I know sometimes when, for, for many, we think of a father, and maybe there's some disappointment, maybe there's some hurt that comes with what a father is. God is not an earthly father. He's a perfect father, a trustworthy father who shows his love, his faithfulness to his children. He looks at us, in Christ, and he goes, you're my child, I love you. You're my daughter, my son, I love you. Jesus says the son remains in the house forever. So God frees us from slavery and chains, slavery to sin, and brings us into his family so that we can have a place in his eternal home so we can remain or abide with him forever and ever. Full circle. And the only reason any of this is possible is because of the perfect sacrifice and obedience of the Son as Jesus displays perfectly what it means to abide in his Father's requirements, to abide in the Word, to continue in. Jesus endured all the way to the cross because we couldn't be free until Jesus was bound and arrested. The change of our slavery couldn't be broken without Jesus being broken. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So as we stand and sons of daughters in Christ, we can't do that with arrogance. We can't do that with superiority because we know we're only in this position. We're only sons and daughters because the Father sacrificed his perfect, beloved Son. Jesus, we didn't do anything to get here. It's by the grace of God alone that we stand redeemed and adopted, freed from sin. Because of the Son. Do you know the Son? Are you sitting here this morning bound in sin and shame? There's freedom in the Son. Will you come to Him? Today, we have an opportunity to take communion together as a family 
not just a King's Chapel family, but we get to take communion as just a family of Christ followers. The table is not just for King's Chapel members. It's for everyone. And we can come to the table. We take of the elements, and they remind us how our freedom was attained. The bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. The cup reminds us of the new covenant that was sealed in his blood. As we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're reminded of that gracious and merciful, loving sacrifice that Christ made. And Paul tells us as we eat and we drink, we do so looking forward to the one day when Christ will come again. We look back at what was done on the cross, resurrection from the grave, and we look forward to the hope that we have of all this brokenness being one day restored in perfection. That's the hope we can have in the Son. It's the hope we can have when we we know the truth of the gospel, and that truth sets us free. So as the band plays this morning, let's spend some time in reflection on those words that Jesus spoke. Let's spend time in confession and repentance. What's holding you in bondage this morning? What's taking the place of your pursuit of God? What voices are speaking lies where you need God's truth? Ask God to to work in your heart, to stir your affections for Him, to direct you in His truth. And after that time of confession, repentance. Come to the table. Drink of the juice. Eat the bread, the matzah. And rejoice celebrating freedom in Christ. And rejoice not just with friends in a room, but family, brothers and sisters in the family of God. Let's bow our heads. Father, this truth should blow us away that while we were rebelling straight to your face, you loved us and you sent your son to die for us so that relationship could be restored, that which was broken so that we could have life in you, so that we could be freed from our sin, freed from the bondage. Lord, help us get out of the way this morning and see how good and faithful you are. Help us to to confess what we need to confess, that we would repent and run to you constantly, knowing that you are the one who reaches out, picks us up, and carries us along. We need you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.